0: And then, Mike, we'll turn it over to you.
1: Everybody, uh, thank you so much for being here. This is our initial uh, meeting at the Physician Leadership Seminar, or Symposium, excuse me. And we have um, taken the benefit of Zoom and brought in some wonderful speakers across the year. And also, we're getting some participation from... Um, people that we haven't seen in a while. So it's, it's wonderful for the alums to be here and for our current class to be here. So I see, I see Tim Burrell showing up and Vincent and all these people that um, I uh, exchange emails with and see every once in a while. So it's really good that, great that you all are here. I'm gonna turn it over to Mike Stahl. Mike, um, uh, as you know, is the one who started the Physician Executive MBA program and his knowledge of the alums goes back further than mine, Mike. You're an encyclopedia of of information about the alums. I only go back about 10 years. So I'm gonna hand it over to you to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh,
2: Thank you, Kate. It is truly a pleasure to introduce an old friend tonight. And I say old, not referring to his age but referring to his experience and referring to the fact that he was in the Physician Executive MBA over two decades ago. It's my privilege to introduce introduce to everyone Dr. Francois Nader, who I hypothesize is one of the premier authorities worldwide on mergers and acquisitions in the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm going to offer evidence to you of that premier authority role using four different bases. Number one, the number of people in this session. 99 people signed up based upon the data that we had from last year where you're establishing a record with your votes, you need to hear this man talk about M&A and the pharmaceutical industry. The second base that I wanna to use to substantiate that notion that he is a premier authority is if you read his bio, I lost count of, and I adore numbers, but I lost count of the number of m as he's been involved in in the pharmaceutical industry. They range from, where's Joe Nunu? A mere half a billion m M&A, to $39 billion merger, all right? With all kinds of numbers in between from a number of different um, joinings together of different entities. In those uh, M&As, he served in a variety of leadership roles ranging from chairman of the board, to board member, to CEO, to executive vice president. So to say that gives a wealth of experience uh, would be an understatement. I'd also like to point out in specific that to say that this man is relevant and hot would be an understatement. I have a sneaking suspicion he's gonna get more speaking uh, invitations than there are hours in the day. And I say that because his role on the Moderna board, he was on the Moderna COVID-19 subcommittee, which oversaw and in fact designed all aspects of the vaccine from design through development through testing, through distribution, and through establishing the relationship with the government, which obviously is uh, adding value to humanity when you look at the number of vaccinations that are being done that come from that Moderna role. And the last thing I'd like to mention is when Francois was in Pemba in the year 2000, he was one of those people that came here and Pemba was like finishing school because he understood everything. You didn't have to say it twice. If anything, there's a couple of times in teaching strategy and business planning, I felt like sitting down and asking Francois to conduct the class. So again, it is truly a pleasure to introduce an old friend, a worldwide expert on M&A in the pharmaceutical industry, Dr. Francois Nader.
3: Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be back uh, among friends. Mike, it's always good to see you. Kate, uh, Don, thank you for inviting me. And Tom Brown, nothing happens without you. You know that, you're, you're one of a kind. <clears throat> but also Tim Burrell that I haven't seen in probably 21 years now or so, and others. So such a pleasure to be here. Um, yes. It's an honor. And um, frankly, um, today what I'd like to do, I prepared a few slides. But really, I'd like it to be more interactive and share my experience. But more importantly, uh, hear from you. And um, I would be more than happy to divert and diverge from uh, the prepared remarks and frankly talk about anything you would be interested in uh, when it comes to M&A or anything else for this matter. So uh, with that, I'll kick it off. And I don't know who's driving the slide. Tom, are you driving the slides or should I drive it? It may be better for you too because
4: uh, there might be a lag. I'm I'm having some Comcast trouble today.
3: Okay, so let me uh, share my screen here. All right, uh, I hope you see my screen. Yes, no? Yes. Okay, terrific. Well, listen, um, The uh, <laughs> this experience with uh, with M&A is a, is a blessing and a curse because this is how you build reputation and this is how you screw up reputation because every, every time I touch a company, people think that it's gonna be sold. Uh, it's so very well happened, it does. But that's certainly not the intent. The intent is uh, is to build companies. And as Mike said, I had the infinite pleasure, quote unquote, to be associated with about seven of these uh, when I was still an executive. And it's funny because uh, when you are acquired, you call it a merger. When you acquire, you call it an acquisition. Okay. That's just semantic. But um, it started... Back in 84, when I joined the Pasteur Institute, and um, at that time, we were owned by Sanofi, okay? I would spare you the details, but uh, so this was 1984. Come 2004, the company I was with, Aventis, was acquired by Sanofi. So this is one of the characteristics of uh, M&A in our industry is never burn bridges because you never know who you will end up working working with or for after 20 years. And believe it or not, 20 years later, I was about to report to exactly the same people that I was reporting to back in 84. And I was still with the same company. Now, um, pronouncing Aventis is easy. We spent five million dollars. $5 million to teach people how to pronounce Högst, Mary, Roussel. And by the time people started just vaguely knowing who it was, we merged with uh, Ron Kroger to become Aventis. So that's one of the constant. And it seems that this curse followed me because uh, when I became a, a CEO, uh, we sold NPS Pharma to Shire for $5 billion dollars. And then um, I joined the board of Paxalta. We sold it a year later. Joined the board of Advanced Accelerator. Sold it a year later. Clementia. And the two last ones that I've done were in 2020, but the closing was in 2021 for the first one, Prevail, that was acquired by Lily for a billion dollars. And Alexion, we hope to close it in the summer at some point acquired by AZ at $39 billion. So what is this world all about? And this is what I'd like to talk to you a little bit about today and some of the lessons learned. So if you look at the space, the M&A space in general, um, all, all all verticals included, uh, this year was a very good year, 2020 was a very good year. And um, what, uh, if I can, yeah, so what we see here is that the volume increased quite a bit uh, post-COVID, uh, and I will get back to this, get, get back to a comment that Kate made, which is uh, quite unbelievable because we never, I mean, we are not traveling, for most of us, we're not traveling, yet we're doing business. And as you can see, there is a jump in the in the third and fourth quarter when it comes to MA at the same time okay um, that's an obvious but when you look at all the different verticals those who are who really benefited uh, from the mna space in 2020 were those that were less impacted or less disrupted by uh, by COVID, and this applies obviously to our world the healthcare world and applies to tech as well and you see that um, there is a very very nice progression especially com- compared to other like energy and power game gaming and leisure no one was gaming anything at least not uh, not physically so um that's an important slide because there was a lot of hesitation at the beginning of the year as to whether or not this M&A world will continue to perform because, um, you know, we were not physically in offices, uh, still not, but yet the uh, we were able to close. So the two deals that I closed this year, um, the uh, Alexion deal and the AZ deal we literally never met our counterparts in person, literally. And one was for about a billion dollars, the other one was for $39 billion. And all this was done, all the due diligence, all the interactions were done actually virtually. So much so that uh, it might be a trend that we will see continuing. And what I predict in 21 and for sure in 22, is more of a hybrid model where certain meetings could take place in person. But I would venture to say that probably two thirds or three quarters of all the interactions in an MA world will be done virtually. It, it is feasible, it was done, it can be done. Now, in the MA world, um, activism is on the rise, no question. And activism is driven by the fact that because they can, they do, all right? To become an activist in any company becomes small. I mean, especially the, the public company, it doesn't take much. It uh, At times, they don't have actually real stock. They have derivatives. But yet, they can start putting pressure on management. It was public information that Alexion, company that we ended up selling, actually was under pressure by activists uh, from the uk called elliot and saying you should sell the company well when you are a 30 something billion dollar company you just cannot go knock on doors you you simply cannot do that why because your phone number is all over the place and anyone who's interested of spending 39 billion dollars can probably find your phone number and call you you know. And we'll see it actually um, uh, in, in a upcoming slide here. The, the message here is activism has to be managed. It has to be identified. It has to be managed, but companies, and this is exceedingly important. So if you want to remember one thing from this presentation, remember that companies are not sold, companies are acquired. Okay, let me repeat that companies are not sold. Companies are acquired. You never put a sign on your front loan and say, I'm for sale. That's the best way to destroy value, okay? As a matter of fact, for Alexion that we ended up sending to AZ, uh, AZ was not even on our radar screen. When we look at potential companies that could acquire uh, Alexion, AZ was not even on our radar screen, you know? turns out that they were the the ones that ended up acquiring the company now when you look at the space the mna space in general uh, the median mna is in the 25 to 30 percent range remember the number because this is a number that does not apply to the biopharma world this applies to virtually everything else And what you see on this this, uh, slide here is the S&P 500 and the growth from uh, 1,200 up to 3,600. Yet uh, the premiums have remained more or less in a flat range, call it between between 25 and 30%. Now, it's interesting because uh, most of the M&As are all cash considerations. It's very rare to have all stock consideration. And in the case of of Alexion, it was a mixed consideration between uh, cash and stock. Okay. But most in general, most of the acquisitions are done on a cash basis. Now, remember this range I mentioned between 25 and 30%. Now look at the numbers for biopharma. Okay. The median uh, premium to unaffected is in the 60-70%. Okay. It's it's very high. And uh, I'm sorry, it's ringing. Cannot turn it off here. We have an emergency. Uh, anyways, turn it off. And as you can see on the bottom, uh, bottom side of the screen, the third one is Alexion acquiring Portola. And I was part of this acquisition, uh, sitting on the board of Alexion, uh, we paid 130% the premium, okay? If you go a few uh, bars to the right, you have Prevail, acquired by Lilly, and uh, it was an 80% um, uh, premium, okay? If you continue to the right, you see AstraZeneca, Alexion, it was 45%. Why? Because if you look at the bottom line, uh, it's a $39 billion transaction, whereas for Prevail it was about a million, and for Portola, Alexion Portola is 1.4. So obviously, the higher you get in terms of um, of uh, proceeds, if you will, obviously the uh, the the lower the premium is. But nevertheless, I mean, look at this number: 45% compared to what we saw a minute ago, in general, uh, ranging between 25 to 30 percent, or 35 percent. So, with that, uh, in our business, in the biopharma business, you always hear that there are a lot of transactions. It's a very active market, and there is always something going on. And the answer to the why is really on this slide. The reason is big pharma is not doing well. Okay, uh, they got to a size where, in order to feed the beast, they need to do more and more and more. And unfortunately, for most of them, actually, the um, the internal R&D engine is not performing uh, well enough, strong enough to compensate for some of the losses. Of exclusivity that these companies are experiencing. So, if you look across the um, the uh, the line here, uh, Eli Lilly is doing very well. It is mainly because of COVID, frankly. Um, that's why, because of their antibody. But you look at virtually everyone else; they're not doing well at all. And therefore, the only way for them to compensate and improve performance has to has to be and is. Uh, through acquisitions, okay? So the biotech world is absolutely geared to be an M&A target because we have those gigantic uh, companies that need to perform, need to increase revenue, need to increase their profitability. And the only way they know how to do it is frankly uh, through acquisitions. And uh, we see, for example, at the bottom of the page here, companies that have quote-unquote profited from the COVID situation. Lilly comes as top of mind, JNJ to a less extent, Pfizer quite a bit, AstraZeneca to a lesser extent, and Gilead to a lesser extent. Sanofi gave up and they flopped. So that's a little bit the big picture. Now, what we've seen is a return like we've seen it with the whole market. This applies also to pharma. Where uh, we've seen an increase in the volume, uh, the deal volumes in the second half of 2020. The first half was iffy, but uh, we learned as an industry to operate uh, m and transaction in the COVID world, as I mentioned it a minute ago. Now, if you if you dive in a little bit more as to which areas are the hot areas, uh, obviously oncology is is. It will continue to be a very hot area we see it in terms of number of deals, we see it in the in terms of deal volumes, it is, it is a very sought after. um, therapeutic area for uh, for acquisitions, the second is the orphan disease, Um, this is where frankly I build my career over the last uh, 15 16 years now in the orphan space. And it is still a hot area, probably not as hot as it has been, but nevertheless, it continues to be a very attractive. And if you see to the bottom left here, there was an acquisition of $65 billion. Takeda acquired Shire for $65 billion to be in the rare disease space. And, um, and AstraZeneca acquired Alexion for $39 billion to be in the rare disease space. Now let me qualify the irony of being in the pharma industry. So back in uh, 2010, so it goes back a few years, uh, I was the CEO of NPS and we were running out of cash and we had some very, very significant challenges. So I decided to outlicense uh, two of our lead, I mean, our two lead products to Takeda. Uh, for its worldwide rights. And um, it was a good transaction for us because they paid us $50 million, right? Uh, which was frankly a blessing at that time for NPS. And so we outlicensed uh, our two products to Takeda. Life was good. A couple of years later, they came back to me and said, you know something? Takeda, we, Takeda, are not terribly interested in the rare disease space. So we kind of change our mind. And frankly, we don't know what to do with your products. And I said, well, uh, I have a solution for you. Why don't you give them back to me? They said, no, no way, we're not doing that. It took about a year of back and forth. And after a year, I bought back our two products from Takeda for $50 million. This time I did it slightly differently because they gave me cash. I gave them a stock for $50 million, but included in the $52 million were $32 million worth of stuff, products, okay? So the actual disbursement was about 18, $18 million or so. Our stock tripled because now we owned our product worldwide. And the reason our stock tripled, the reason Takeda accepted to give back their products is because they were not interested, they were not interested in the rare disease business. And they were talking $50 million. Funny enough, five years later, they acquired Shire to be in the rare disease business and they paid $65 million, billion dollars. Interestingly enough, in the interim, Shire, actually bought us for 5 billion. So instead of keeping our products for 50 million, they ended up being, paying $5 billion for the same products with the US rights on top. So that's kind of the irony of the M&A business where it is a very incestuous circle. Everyone knows everyone and depending on uh, on the mood of the day in big pharma, they can be in or out in MA and a business. Um, I'm the chairman of a company called Talares Cell Therapy. It was acquired for $100 million by Novartis, who after a couple of years decided not to be in the cell therapy and return the asset to the founders. And we turned around and launched the company, and now the company is in phase three it's an interesting interesting thing if you remember my first slide, never burn bridges and my second comment here it's it, it might come back it's a very small word and what comes around goes around for those of you who are more interested in uh, in pharma and 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 biotech specifically and as to the why and when these things happen this slide is extremely important why because Large pharma hates taking risks. They don't like that. They have an allergy. This is why probably they're not that successful because they usually don't take a lot of risks. So interestingly enough, if you are a biotech company, there are two zones of risk of being acquired, okay? First is just immediately pre-launch, okay? Um, When your product now is completely de-risked, the FDA approved it or is about to approve it, it's completely de risked So this is the area of risk, quote-unquote, to be acquired. And the second zone of risk is couple of years after the product has been launched so that uh, the acquirer actually de-risks the uh, commercial viability of the product. So if you are um, If you are engaged or if you are associated with a biotech company, remember those two data points here, just when the product is de-risked from a regulatory perspective. And the second would be a couple of years after launch, uh, when the product is de-risked from a commercial perspective. Case in point, uh, when we sold NPS to Shire for $5 billion, One of our products has been on the market for two years. And the second product was just about to be approved uh, by the FDA. Funny enough, we closed the deal literally a week before the product was approved. And then um, I I was invited to the launch meeting, the product launch meeting, and my uh, name tagged said guest it was very ironic that uh, it took a, it took less than a week for me to switch from ceo to guest but it is what it is so nps is a very good example where there's these two variables actually have applied uh, exactly right okay now we started talking about um, large cap uh, mna uh, and why these things happen obviously it's to augment uh, augment Top line, bottom line, uh, enhance all the metrics, whether it's P&L, r and capacity, or cash. The third point is the most important. Uh, many companies uh, become very aggressive when it comes to MA once they are about to lose uh, exclusivity for their lead product. So if you look, for example, at the um, upcoming LOEs, and you see it on, on the right side of the Humira is a $20 billion product and I don't know how AbbVie in the right mind could be able or will be able to compensate for the loss, knowing that they will lose exclusivity in 2023 and there is a probably 99% probability that someone will emerge in the generic space and uh, snatch a big chunk of this $20 billion market. Same with Revlimid, Uh, previously Celgene, now BMS. Uh, next year, uh, BMS will lose $13 billion of sales because usually for these products, it's, uh, I mean, it goes down very quickly. So, this uh, third point here of the loss, loss of exclusivity is a, a main driver. Uh, strengthen core franchise or enter a new therapeutic area. The only reason Lilly acquired Prevail was to be in the gene therapy space. Uh, they did not have any gene therapy, anything. And they decided to acquire uh, Prevail, which was is a ne- neurodegenerative um, neurodegenerative gene therapy company, and uh, they decided to acquire it and keep it standalone, so that um, they can um, they can start building. Around prevail to build their um, their uh, gene therapy franchise. As I mentioned it a minute ago, and this is the reason AstraZeneca acquired Alexion. It is to build this um, uh, rare disease franchise. Now, for the targets, um, so these are the buyers. The targets um, could be either because they have depressed valuation, they missed, they missed a clinical endpoint, they missed uh, a launch, they missed or the absence of clear future growth drivers. Very important. Some companies are one one pony show and they cannot cannot diversify quick enough. Or uh, last but certainly not least, they are under pressure from activists and frankly, they don't have a choice. So with that in mind, how does uh, this year look from an M&A perspective? the, the projections are that um, there is continues to be a strong appetite for m a so uh, we will see that 21 will be will be a very active year uh, probably more active than um, than 2020 if you see 43 percent 60 percent of the executive 43 plus 17. Uh, say that they have an increased appetite for MA and the money is flowing. So there is a lot of cash, a lot of capital waited, waiting to be invested. And this is uh, what we're talking about here. So the average S&P 500 uh, cash balance is over $5 billion. And when people in our space invest in companies in the biopharma It is not for the dividend, it is for the upside. And that's where the capital allocation becomes an extremely important, very, very important uh, topic uh, around the board table and with management. You have companies that are, and Avi, I showed you, I mean, when you have a product that uh, that generates $20 billion of cash every year, it's a cash cow. no one would invest in AVI uh, to get a coupon. I mean, they want AVI to continue investing in high-risk, high-reward uh, new technology, innovative technology. And this is something that we know is gonna happen. So all these companies that are sitting on a truckload of uh, of cash will have to invest or they will be under pressure by, um, by the activist at the same time, the investors look at this, I mean the numbers are are, are staggering the total capital raised, and these are for our for the investor uh, reached $221 billion uh, in 2020 I mean these, these are absolutely huge numbers and investors will have to find opportunities to invest so for those of you who are thinking of launching. Uh, a venture, uh, launching a new company, having, and and uh, for many of you, I assume you being at Pemba either this year or previous years is because you have this, uh, this investor, uh, this entrepreneurship bug, if you will. If your idea does not generate interest in terms of funding, it means that the idea is not probably a very good one why because money is available okay so uh on the i mean said it saying it differently if you say well uh, investors are not invested or i'm too early or i'm too late or it's too expensive or it's not expensive enough or it's too much money or not money all this all this is probably uh, a smokescreen, because fundamentally you have probably to revisit the idea itself because capital is available. I've never so far, since I've been in the biotech space in the last 15 years, I did not experience one good idea that was not that did not find the right capital when the idea is right and when the, uh, the potential is there and very well documented. So just keep it in mind that uh, if you get an excuse from investors that uh, it is this, that, or the other. Just uh, I would suggest having the probably humility for a better word to rethink your idea and make sure that it is more appealing uh, to investors because, uh, again, money is there. More specifically, in our um, in our space, in biopharma, there will continue to be an acceleration. Why? Because of what I showed you about big pharma. Uh, big pharma is not doing well. They continue to need new uh, innovations. They need to continue to need new technologies, new products, and they're uh, they're willing to pay a big, big chunk of change to get that. Okay, so uh, as I said here, these are the three reasons buy, buyers are motivated. Then the the borrowing rates are ridiculously low, and we know today that uh, the Feds do not have any intention short medium term to increase the rates so money is cheap and there are good ways of investing these uh, these uh, these monies into um, interesting ideas and um, most investors are looking for large caps to allocate capital to improve growth prospects I cannot I cannot tell you how many times um, capital allocation remains the key topic of discussion around the board table, why? Because our investors are, um, I mean, that's what they give us money for, you know, and um, investing, allocating the capital wisely is the right thing to do, okay? Uh, As a consequence of this first bullet point, um, the premiums for change of control will continue to be elevated. And uh, we've seen this transition Back, I would say, even five years ago, having a 50-60% premium was considered uh, a superb deal. Now we're looking more at 70, 80, 100. Uh, I showed you a couple of examples of 134, 150. So it's it's definitely a a market that will continue to support uh, premiums, very significant premiums. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to the last line here partnership transaction as an alternative to create long term value in an environment of high valuations so keep this in mind, because we'll get back to this. As I said, companies are not you never sell a company you your company is acquired and one of the ways to generate interest in your company, if you so desire is uh, through partnerships. You know, it's funny how many partners you start negotiation with end up buying the company. Why? Because they know you, they know your product, whatever your product is. They know management. They know where the skeletons are in the closets. And uh, frankly, they know your company probably better than you do. So partnership is a very interesting uh, vehicle to uh, to predict uh, an and down the road, okay? And um, as I said, probably 2021 will not change significantly from 2020 where oncology rare diseases uh, continue to be of interest, immunology is emerging. And um, I would not tell you anything you don't know that vaccine was the most dormant sector of our industry for as long as I can remember. No one was re- interested in vaccines until COVID hit, and now vaccines are the name of the game. If you take uh, a company like Moderna, I serve on the board of Moderna. As Mike mentioned, it uh, I joined the board of, no, of Moderna in December of 2019. The market cap of the company was seven billion dollars. Last I checked, it was 7T, 70. Seven zero. You know why? Because of one product called COVID right so uh, we've seen an emergence a gigantic emergence unknown companies like uh, no- nova novavax and others i mean frankly m- rounding errors in the in the space of uh, of nma bioNTech again a company that was 3 or 400 million dollars market cap now is is hugely successful at the same time uh, companies are looking at uh, de risking novel modalities. So, gene therapy, RNAi, allogenic cell therapy, all these are emerging. And uh, companies are willing to pay quite a bit of premium to acquire. If uh, uh, either to set up shop in gene therapy, it's easier to acquire rather than build. But at the same time, uh, the more we do gene therapy, the more we do RNAi, the more we do allogenic cell therapy, the more de-risked it becomes because we learn how to do it. We learn what works, what doesn't work. We learn in these particular areas the importance of manufacturing. So the more time passes, the more these areas will be de-risked, the more attractive they will become. So I'd like to switch to these seven key M&A takeaways. So this presentation is is very general. I, I, I tried to identify for you, with you, the stuff that was interesting to keep in mind. Just take, it took me about 30 years to get to these seven key M&A's. And I don't pretend to be the owner. Actually, I have good friends at Bank of America who did the work with me for me. Just to boil down, what are the seven most important factors in M&A's, okay? So if you ever are either on the acquirer side or if you are on the being acquired side, these seven key m a takeaways are your roadmap, okay? So I'm shaving 10 or 20 years of m experience in seven slides, so just use them. Um, so the first, and I mentioned this, deals that are successful are not usually outbound sale processes. I would venture to say <clears throat> that, um, Deals that are successful, if I if I focus on the word successful, are never outbound sale processes. Are never okay. Now we have a couple of examples here: Lily acquired Dormira and uh, Pfizer acquired. But frankly, in the big scheme of things, these are rounding errors. Um, whereas if you look at the at the um, at the left here. I was involved with uh, Ibsen being acquir- acquiring actually Clementia was on the board of Clementia and um, it was we received a phone call okay. Um, I sold NPS to Shire based on a phone call, I mean the phone rings and uh, the job here really your, your, your job is not trying to sell your company that doesn't work, it does not work, so don't even try. What you can do though, as executive, is let your company be known. Schmooze with the people who can eventually pick up the phone and call you, you know? And this is what we did. I mean, uh, we spent quite a bit of time let it, letting Clementia being known. Um, I used to spend one third of my time talking to investors and potential acquirers. Not to sell my company, just to showcase what my company can do. We did the same with virtually every company I've been associated with. So this is critically important. And if one tells you go and try to sell the company, that's the wrong approach. Okay. What you can do, should do, is make sure that your company is known. Your company is known for what it can do. Uh, your company is known why it is differentiated from everyone else in the marketplace. Anything that you can make the acquirer lives easier is will will return to you hundred folds. So with that in mind, now we look at oops I went too far. So, this is the second, uh, the second uh, rule here. The first party to submit a non-binding offer is almost always the successful acquirer in the end. Now, uh, you see the checks here with, with only one exception, and there is a reason for this exception, by the way. Every one of these, the first party who submitted an NBO won the deal. Okay. Now it can go fast. It can take forever. We'll talk about it in a minute here. Okay. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I don't know if we have lawyers in the room, but if you have lawyers in the room and lawyers advising you, which is their job is to advise you, they would say, no, 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 you don't understand. You should do a market check. That's the technical word. In other words, you get an offer, you are with company ABC and then company XYZ calls you and puts a non-binding offer on the table, your attorneys rightfully so will will say, why don't you go ahead and do a market check? Just to make sure that, um, that uh, you're getting the right price. And what you will do is exactly that. You will do the market check and then uh, the market check will come back usually negative and you will end up sending your company to the first bidder, All right? Why do we do that? We do that because the only certainty in public companies being acquired, the only certainty, there is only one, is you will get sued. That's the only certainty. It, it, it never fails. The gimmick is uh, the game of bidding whether you will be sued by one, two, three, four, or five parties. You know, Now, why are you getting sued? It's not because you did not do a good job. It is because something called DNO insurance, Directors and Officers Insurance, that protects you as director or officer of the company from being sued, okay? So it's totally inexpensive to get sued. And I can tell you in virtually every company I was involved in selling, we got sued. And in every company, one smart attorney photocopied what his peer presented before, including the typos. And that's not, I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, they they photocopy the, the, the lawsuit and they send it to you. That's all what it costs. And your insurance will pay for it. Now, as a protection, you say, you know, I did a market check. So it's literally to check the box. But uh, do not, I mean, probably the message here is your first non-binding offer is probably the good one and if you think that you are undervalued just take a deep breath and think about it why because you know you can you can you can uh, Here it says uh, that creating competitive tension via market check is critical to optimize the process dynamic but rarely results in an alternative acquirer so you use the market check to put pressure on the first party who actually made you an offer it's a gimmick it's a tactic it's a negotiation tactic that's why you use it but don't don't build false hopes that by by checking the market you will have a better offer however okay this is this is why it becomes frustrating this is the frustration part okay slow slow fast on average eight months it takes between the first call and actually uh, sealing the deal. It takes a long time. And in the interim, it's very difficult. It's very challenging because you have to run a company while being being under the pressure of someone making you an offer or flirting with your company and trying to see what you can do. So it's a process that is very frustrating because it takes time. Uh, My record was uh 10 weeks between first call and closing but that was a record um in general it takes forever to to get there and the minute the big pharma for example or the choir decides to move i mean the minute they wake up they want to sign the deal in a few weeks so all of a sudden it's rushing to the finish line it is what it is that's kind of the norm there that's very important okay most sellers achieve two to three bumps in price, okay? And um, if you have a public company, then you have your, um, your uh, advisors, the bankers who are sweating bullets to increase the price and they sell you how competent they are and uh, how much they can do. And maybe I can give you a buck more, but I'm not sure all this is frankly uh, Hollywood type of games. Because you know, now that you've seen the slide, you know that whatever first offer you got, there is at least two, maybe three bumps in the price. Now we broke a record because that's what one of my companies with Clementia, where I think we had six or seven bumps at stop counting. I mean, they started increasing by 10 cents. It's a French company. It might be the French way of doing business, but I think we went at the well about six or seven times. And we ended up standing exactly where we were we so. uh, You can nod very nicely to your advisor saying thank you for the immense work that you're doing for me increasing the 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 price and stuff but it's all part of this game that everyone plays honestly I mean there is nothing miraculous about it. Uh, So. This is very important. Share price uh, premium remain highly elevated, reflecting substantial disconnect between public market and intrinsic value of biopharma asset. So if you think of it for a minute, <coughs> now help me understand, why is it that my company, why is it that you're buying my company at a 50% premium, yet the market is, is not giving me this 50% premium? Why do I have to wait for some uh, someone to put money on the table? And it's interesting, it's simply because in, uh, in most cases, um, the internal projections are usually much better than the uh, street projections, so that's one. But at the same time, uh, never underestimate, if you will, the execution risk. So that's the other alternative. So as CEOs, uh, you probably say, well, I can do better on my own. And most CEOs, me included, frankly, uh, tend to underestimate the execution. Uh, fact, uh, fact of the matter, these things happen, you know. And uh, so, and now this is the second thing that the uh, CEOs say, I will, I will do it alone. I can take it and make it successful. I don't need to sell it to anyone, which is true in many cases, but your investors don't like that. They like you to pass on the baton to someone who, in their opinion, actually, uh, can do a better job than you can. Now, uh, it's not always the case. And frankly, um, more often than not, whoever acquires your company usually does not do as well as you can do with your company. But that's kind of the name of the game. And you can see it here, you know, Um These are the top investors in our business, and uh, they like to pass on the baton to someone who they believe can do a better job than you can. What does this mean uh, for potential targets? Now, if you are a target, these are the things to keep in mind, okay? Uh, First, uh, any kind of uh, business development and licensing, should be considered tactically because as i mentioned it before it's an entry to a potential change uh, changing control um okay uh, large pharma if you deal with them any large companies not only large pharma any large public company it takes time to get comfortable that's the way and what you will see is you they align 15 people and you are two you know they align 32 people and you you literally bring in The um, the uh, janitor to be more people because frankly you have a startup and the whole the whole company is 10 people Uh, that's the way it is, Um, but once they make up their mind just make sure to be ready, because they can move exceedingly fast. I repeat here it's rare to get more than one non binding offer that is worth the, uh, the brain damage frankly now. Uh, internal alignment on value is critical. Always remember that. It's very funny how you see people reacting in a very bizarre way when it comes to money. And this applies to your executives. It applies to your board members, okay? And I've seen board members who are gazillionaires argue endlessly for a bump in price of 25 cents. That's the way it is, okay? So as CEO or as chair or as board member, having an alignment uh, is interesting. One of the examples I have is uh, we were having dinner as a board and the chairman asked for, uh, you know, small papers and a pen and uh, asked every one of the uh, board members to write down at which price they would accept or acquiesce that the company be acquired. The range was one to two. Okay, some people could not wait to get rid of the company, and others could not wait to make a gazillion dollar out of it. We ended up selling the company halfway through the range that was. Uh, defined by the board. Uh, But it was funny because we all had the same data. We all looked at the same, we all knew the company the same way, but nevertheless, it was absolutely needed um, to have. Now, as I said, even though uh, point number four is true, point number six is, is also very true. In other words, when whoever wants to buy you knows that you're doing a market check, There is always this paranoia of losing the deal so you can you can use it to your uh, to your uh, advantage and last but certainly not least we saw it on the slide uh, previous slide seven your shareholders won't stand in the way of a deal i've never seen shareholders with rare rare exception when frankly it's an odd deal Uh, usually the shareholders like to sign a deal because frankly they like to get the money out and do something else with it and finally I will leave you with a couple of thoughts the first is a question that i I get a lot why do we have m why don't they leave me alone building my company why because uh, investors uh, make money in three or four ways and m a is one of them okay so that's kind of the basic of making money when you are an investor and it's called a liquidity event uh, and it's called an exit strategy these are the technical words for making money so it it looks nicer but at the end of the day it is making money i joined a venture capital firm uh first day i met with two of the partners and uh, naive me i said what's the culture of the firm here so that i can integrate quicker and uh, the uh, the chairman of the firm uh, said, well, we have three principles, our values. We have three values that are critical for you to succeed here. Value number one is to make money. He said, okay, I can get that. And he said, value number two is to make more money. And value number three is to even make more money. So once you get that, uh, this applies, and that's the way to make money. Why M&A should not happen? Why? Because... <laughs> Eight deals out of 10 fail and fail is defined by projections that are made to justify the value versus the value realized in a horizon of three to five years. Eight out of 10 failed. It's pretty amazing. And yet most of the executives interviewed 82% believed that their deal was successful. You know, this is where, um, again, data could be interpreted very differently. Third, uh, how is a successful m a process designed and executed? Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before the defeat. The one thing that you never see described in m is how m succeed. m succeed if there is a... Share of the same values and the same objectives. Okay. MA succeed not on the EQ, not on the IQ. MA succeed on the EQ. Said differently, MA fail on the EQ. I was the happy participant in a merger called hochst Marion Roussel. hochst Herx, German, Marion American, Roussel, French. We merged two and a half years later we had a meeting of the top 200 executives. We were in Vienna, 200 executives of Höchst, Marion, Roussel, and um, the um, facilitator of the meeting at some point stopped and said, by show of hand, who is from a Marian background? Who is from a Höchst background? Who is from a Roussel background? In the room, two and a half years later, we had three distinct groups sitting, each one, with their own tribe. The Hooks sat with the hooks the Marian sat with the Marian, and uh, the uh, Roussel sat with the Roussel. Fast forward, Herx and Roussel had to merge with Ron Palancroler to survive. The whole merger took three years, OK? From inception to death, it was three years, OK? Uh, so the advisor are necessarily evil. I put this uh, this advice from a, from an advisor. I put only his initials because, frankly, I did not want to embarrass him. But you can read the sentence 15 times. You don't you don't get anything out of it because he is right with every possible permutation of what happens, right? I mean, it's written in a way that, frankly, yeah, I think it mean, will go up. But maybe it will go down. But definitely it will go up. Anyway, we'll see, you know? cannot get wrong with that so just be mindful of your advisors and try to i mean i'm not i'm not discounting their value but i'm saying that there is a lot of fluff um that's i love this um, i love this quote uh, from simon sinek and it's so true and it kind of uh, it's a little bit in the same vein of what i just said a minute ago i i love this is probably a quote that you should you should print and have in front of you. Mergers are like marriages. They are the bringing together of two individuals. If you would not marry someone for their operational efficiency they offer in the running of a household, then why should you combine two companies with unique cultures and identities for that reason? This is an amazingly powerful statement. And again, repeating for the third time, this is the reason frankly, mergers fail. And my favorite of all times is the last one. It came from Igor Lando, who was the CEO of Aventus. Aventus was under pressure to be acquired by Sanofi and we had a a year long fight um, that uh, Sanofi ended up winning at the end. But I will never forget what he said in a public forum He said putting two patients in one bed does not miraculously create a healthy one. Yet you won't believe that 80 or 90% of the mergers happen for exactly this reason. Why? Because we have two uh, sick patients and we profoundly believe that putting them together, merging, will create a healthy one. As physicians, most of you are. It doesn't really happen this way. And this is the reason for the number two, why eight out of 10 deals fail. That's all I had to share with you today. So uh, with that, uh, I will, I don't know, I think we have a little bit of time and I'd like to open it to questions. if I can get out of my slides. Here we go, thank you
1: you can either type your questions in chat or uh, go ahead and raise your hands and we'll try to follow up in the order that you ask them.
0: Looks like Joe has a, did Joe have a question? yeah i've
4: got i've got a couple real quick questions i mean i in fact i I would love to have a one-on-one with francois for um for probably a couple hours on my end but i won't uh anybody in that especially him um thank you so much for this fantastic lecture joe that's that's a thousand dollars an hour you know (laughs) no doubt and i don't have that kind of money um but
3: 999 because you're a friend joe
4: (laughs) (laughs) thanks buddy i appreciate it um Thank you so much for the great lecture. It was fantastic. Um, I learned a ton, and uh, really, a, a very much inspiring uh, to hear some of your thoughts. Um, so, on slide fifteen, you have um, uh, this graph that basically shows the um, the um, the different risks and when when each uh, M and A deal um, it occurs um, strategically from a I imagine there are strategically there are advantages to to acquiring a company at certain stages, um, and and that that might be different than when you're um, actually putting your company merging versus acquisition. Um, when when how does how does one figure out when, when a good time to do that is? I mean, is each scenario different? It seems like
3: there, there's probably a a rule of thumb. Well, the rule of thumb is 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 something called de-risking, and um, if you are a startup and you have a product that is in preclinical, the de-risking uh, stage will be filing an IND with the FDA. If the IND is accepted, then you're okay. Uh, phase one is not de-risking because must every phase one succeed, but proof of concept in phase two B is de-risking. So. Phase 2A, Phase 2B, the minute you have a human proof of concept, is a very good exit point. No question. The minute you embark on a Phase 3, no one would touch you until they see if your Phase 3 succeeds. Okay, that's the other one. And then once your Phase 3 succeeds, no one would touch you unless they got a blessing from FDA or regulators in general that your product will be approved. And uh, once you go beyond this phase, it will be a couple of years after launch to make sure that your product is commercially viable. So there is, and uh, maybe the other factor to take into consideration, if you're a platform company, then the situation is different because you might see an acquirer interested in your platform in general, and therefore they, they might be willing to take a little bit more risk. So for example, gene therapy is considered a platform and gene therapy that use the AAV approach, they all look the same. So if I'm an acquirer, and now I'm comfortable with the adenovirus approach, I might take a little bit more risk because others have tried it and succeeded.
4: Got you it. See? Yeah, one last quick question. This one's really easy. On on this slide, the very next one, um, where does one find, um, I, I imagine there'd be a listing of when, um, exclusivities are about
3: to expire. Yeah, that's public information. It's it's in the orange book, something called the the orange Orange book. Book. Yeah, I got the orange book, okay. Find that, yeah. Thanks.
0: Sure. Other questions. Uh, Francois, I was once told, and while we're waiting for another question, I was once told by someone famous that every merger is an acquisition in disguise. Uh, He's a very famous professor at uh, at UT in the PEMBA program. And uh, Dr. Stahl, that was your quote, by the way. Uh, And what was interesting to me was that statistic that you gave that 80% 80 plus (coughs) of of M&As fail. Do you think it's primarily culture? or do you think there are other factors that might be involved? It sounds like you're, you're heading in the direction of culture being the issue.
3: So culture is, uh, is the one thing that is gigantically underestimated when it comes to m and in general. But second, I would say, Don, uh, why are we merging? What's the rationale for the merger? And you would be surprised how often I asked the question and the, the answer was a boilerplate. So, I mean, that's the fundamental question is the why. You know, if it is to put two sick patients in one bed and hope that miraculously will yeah. feel great, it doesn't really work this way. So these are really the two elements. The third one, it's funny you say, you, you try to draw a distinction between merger and acquisition. That's so important. So I can give you an example. And it was at the, at the time, frankly, when I, uh, this was my PEMBA time in 2000. So we merged Höx, Marion, Roussel, and RPR, and it was a merger of equal, okay? Which is kind of the the merger par excellence, because merger equal. Interestingly enough, though, if you look at the U.S. leadership team, 90% were coming from Höx, Marion, Roussel. Huh. Mm. So for the folks in the U.S., it was not a merger of equal. It was an acquisition Of RPR by HMR. If you look in France and Europe in general, it was just the reverse, you know. So all of a sudden you say merger on equal technically, merger of equal financially, merger on equal legally. Operationally, it was an acquisition by HMR in the U.S. or an acquisition by RPR in Europe, you know. And that's an interesting nuance. And this is why ultimately it did not work very well.
0: And if I can, I, I don't want to make I don't want to gerrymander this, but um, the other thing that I am always interested in is where you what would be the best source to look at as an investor, as someone who's invest investing in the uh, stock market. What do you feel is the best source to get the real information on the validity of M and A's? you do you ha- i should should ask do you have a resource like that or does it just not exist you have to look at all the
3: uh, typical resources like the journal and the websites um, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. no you can do that i yeah. mean the document that i found fascinating is the summary of the merger in other words and there is a technical word for it i forgot what it was a number but it is uh, it is the summary of everything that happened from the first outbound or inbound uh, phone call or whatever to the execution of the merger. It's very interesting. It's uh, it's always written by 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 lawyers, so it is sanitized to a certain extent. But when you see the the road, you know that the merger took between the first call and the closing. For me, it's very indicative whether or not um, it will work or not. And prior to that, actually, or or along the same time, when when companies file, uh, try to convince their shareholders and file yeah. the rationale for this is also another document. Some of the documents, I mean, you read them and you say, "Holy cow, it it will never work." Some others, you say, "Well, there is a rationale for doing it." And my third, the third is uh, the human aspect, which is hugely underestimated. Is once the company merged what happens to the acquired company? Uh, are the people still there or all of them exited? So when we were acquired by, uh, by, uh, by Shire, they fired uh, me, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. They fired all my executives and they fired the, the next level below. The nuance is we were launching two products. So by doing that, they completely lost the corporate memory. and they got screwed, you know, why? Because there was no one who remembered what, and interestingly enough, a couple of years later, they hit a CMC issue and they were forced to withdraw the product from the market. (laughs) We had solved the CMC issue. So if you if they had a little bit of common sense to retain the experts who actually solved the CMC issue, the product would not have been withdrawn from the market, you know? So anyway, it's uh, it's uh, it's what happens the day after. Very important. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Any other questions or comments from anybody?
1: I have a I have a question. So Francois, we've talked about how critical culture is to the success of an M and A, and then we've also talked about M um, and A via Zoom and the virtual M and A tools. Um, I guess it's a two part question. Can you really get to the culture? by those virtual tools. Yeah. And in your experience, if culture is so important, how emphasized is that? Or is it really the top priority is the finance and then the culture ends up being, have you ever been part of a deal or, or a discussion where you said, eh, "Culture is not a fit, not gonna do it? Or is it, or does the finance part take?
3: Yeah, rest- it's always with, with, I mean, at least in my experience, uh, culture is talking about, but it's never taken into consideration. I should not say never. Usually it is not taken into consideration it's talking about. But then it, it happens the minute you, you you sign before closing, and this is where culture emerged. How do you retain these people? How do you make sure that your key top talents are retained in the new company? This is where the culture kick, kicks in. Um, Zoom, can, uh, you can you can very easily detect culture through Zoom. Because it's a human interaction. I mean, you, you're you missing the social part. But you can, you see how they're, you, you see their turnover. You see, it's not that difficult. The only trick is to pay attention to it. That's all. It's not difficult, provided you pay attention to it. That's all.
0: Well, I noticed that we're at 6.15, which is 15 minutes beyond what we had planned. Well, and I can't thank you enough, really, Francois. Don, do you yeah. think we
1: could do one more question? Francois, do you have oh, one more, oh, have Sunil, one more okay, question? Oh, Sunil, okay, I'm
0: sorry, I missed that. Yeah,
1: Sunil, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up after that. Uh, first,
0: good. Uh, thank you, it was a great, uh, great presentation. Um, sure. Question, uh, do, do you feel these rules apply to other verticals within healthcare, such as, let's say, hospitals or technology? you, you talked a lot of the biopharma uh, uh, M&A's. Uh, do you feel the rules apply to the other verticals within healthcare?
3: I, I do, I do. Actually, I, I cross-checked this information with my colleagues who are more on the healthcare side. Uh, the, the last seven rules apply now with, with certain nuances, obviously, but they, they certainly apply. Um, and I would be interested if it does not to let me know um, because that's a field that I know a little bit about. We were in the healthcare provider space, family-wise, and we sold our business, but um, it's interesting. But from what I checked prior to this presentation, most of it applies probably with a little bit of nuances, you
1: know. Francois, so thank you so much for your time this evening. My that driver. was very informative, insightful uh gives somebody um it g- gives you something to think about when you're reading that wall street journal what what's going on behind and, and what's happening behind doors a little bit so thank you i also but thank you like, for
3: the opportunity it's a pleasure to see everyone and uh being it, back is and good. Here.
1: <laughs> it is good to see everybody it's like being back on saturday morning classes but exactly. with better, uh, audio and video right
3: <laughs> exactly <laughs>
2: François, uh, thank
3: you it was a pleasure to see you again thank you mike always a pleasure
1: I want to thank Don Leiter for his efforts and also Tom Brown for his efforts in making this happen. So thank you very much. Thank you all. And I also want to remind everyone about our next presentation. It's Dr. Leon Adelman. Dr. Uh, Leon was here tonight. He's going to be talking about innovations in managing emergency care on Tuesday, March 16th from 830 to 930 in the morning. So we've got a morning session next time and we'll we'll be getting that invitation out to you. Prince, all wonderful to see you. Thank you so much. It was a
3: pleasure, Kate. Take good care. Be safe.
1: Everybody, have a great evening. Be safe.
3: Thanks so much. Take care.
4: Bye, everyone.